Good morning, church. Glad to be able to be with you on this first Sunday in August, whether you're here in person in the sanctuary or in uh, our live stream audience. Going through a portion of the book of Luke, which begins in Luke chapter 17, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem to understand the heart and the mind and the passion of the Savior. So today we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 um, through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the house top with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for the scripture. Thank you that you've given us the word of God. And now may our hearts be open to the scripture and to your leadership as you teach. Open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a hymn entitled, Lean On, O King Eternal, The Day of March Has Come. And the second stanza goes like this. Lead on, O King Eternal, we follow, uh, the day of March has come, henceforth in fields of conquest, thy tent shall be our home. And then it says that the kingdom will come not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drum, but with deeds of love and kindness, the heavenly kingdom comes. So, so he says, this hymn written by a seminary graduate from Andover Seminary in the 1830s, he says, that, that the kingdom comes not with the stirring marching of drums or with the clashing of swords, but the kingdom comes with love and kindness. So the question is, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God in the scripture is used 126 times in the New Testament. 
126 times. 55 times in the book of Matthew. So in this passage, it says, you know, it talks about the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Let me give you some, an overview. Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1583, says, What do you pray for when you pray the second petition? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the answer is that when, when we pray thy kingdom come, we are praying that God would so rule in our hearts by his word and by his spirit that we will more and more submit to him that he will preserve and increase his church, that he will destroy the works of the devil and every proud obstacle to the word of God until Christ is our all in all. What is the kingdom of God? John Calvin said the kingdom of God is the invisible made visible in the church of his redeemed people. It's the invisible being made visible. The Shorter Catechism, Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the kingdom of God? Answer, the, Satan, when we pray the kingdom come, we're saying that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace advanced among ourselves and others brought into it. So Satan's kingdom destroyed, the kingdom of grace advanced. About seven years ago, a theologian named George E. Ladd said that the kingdom of God was the already but not yet. In other words, when Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious over death and ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit, the kingdom was birthed. Satan was a defeated foe, but we live in the interregnum between the already and the consummation of the full kingdom, the already but not yet. Many people have referred to that as a difference between D-Day in June of 1944 in World War II and over a year later in August, which was Victory in Europe Day. There was a 14-month situation. We knew Germany was more or less defeated, but there had to be this ongoing war. We're in the interregnum, the interim between the outpouring Holy Spirit and the coming of Jesus in power and might. R.C. Sproul used this illustration. He said in 1989, talking about the kingdom, he said he was lecturing in Eastern Europe and he had been lecturing in Hungary and was going into Romania and it was right before the wall came down and the Eastern Bloc countries crumbled and the Soviet Union was no more. But he said he was told by many people that the guards that would check your material between Hungary going further east into Romania were sometimes pretty callous and pugilistic and rough. And so he and his wife and a couple of people are taking the train into Romania. They're stopped at the border. The Romanian guards come on board. There is an older man, the leader, with two young guys. And they went into R.C. Sproul. He's a Presbyterian theologian into his compartment and went through his luggage. And the older man looked down and he saw a Bible. And he said in broken English, can I see your Bible? And R.C. gave it to him. And he opened it up to Philippians 3.20. And he says, the scripture says here that our citizenship is in heaven. And he smiled and he said, your passport says you're Americans, but I know that you're really citizens of heaven. And he says, I too am Romanian, but ultimately my citizenship is in heaven. And he smiled and he said to the younger guards, they're Christians, let them go, it's no big deal. The kingdom of God. 
What is the kingdom of God? So as I look at these things and these issues, I, I come up with this definition. The kingdom of God is the, is the progressive rule of the living God in my heart by the power of the word of God that's energized by the Holy Spirit, whereby God's people go further into the light and extend the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of darkness is defeated. So it's progressively walking in obedience to the Spirit-inspired, Spirit-illumined Word so that we go further into the kingdom of grace and God's kingdom is advanced and Satan's kingdom is destroyed. Colossians says that he's translated us from the kingdom of darkness and he's planted us in the kingdom of his beloved son. So the kingdom. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask this question, and it's kind of an incredulous question. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is, he says, in the midst of you. In other words, Jesus says, I'm the kingdom. The kingdom is here. If you go back to just in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, right after the temptation, 40 days and 40 nights, Christ goes into the temple in Nazareth. This is one of the most powerful portions of the Gospels. He says he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. And so he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, this messianic prophecy that said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say, quote, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Close quote. In other words, this messianic prophecy is fulfilled in me. This is kingdom come. And from that point forward, it says here that, that many people were attracted to him and drawn to him, but many people were perplexed and turned against him. This way it went throughout his ministry. Attracted, followed, perplexed, turned away, even hated. So, so, so he says, this is now kingdom come. And then just to the next four chapters, when the Pharisee says, when's the kingdom come? And really you look at the life of Christ. In the next four chapters, he, he heals demon-possessed men. He cleanses lepers. He, he heals a man with a withered hand. He... Uh, He's going down the road and a funeral procession is coming to him with a widow and her only child, a son. He stops the funeral procession and he raises this son from the dead. All the time saying, this is now a sign that the kingdom has come. There's a huge storm on the sea and hardened fishermen, sailors who had seen countless storms were so unhinged that they thought they were going to die. Jesus stands up and he says, peace be still. And this horrible storm becomes a lake of glass. And they said, even the wind and the waves obey him. There were people that followed him all day long, 5,000 men. And at the end of the day, they were hungry. And Jesus takes five loaves and two fish 
and he feeds 5,000 men plus the women and the children and the 12 basketfuls left up for the, for, to put in the fridge for the next day. And he's, he's doing all these things and every miracle is saying, the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. He goes to the Mount of Transfiguration where he's changed, his clothes were changed to white as snow. Moses and Elijah come down from heaven to talk to him about his coming passion. Peter, James, and John see it and the Pharisees have the audacity to say, when will this kingdom come? And Jesus is saying, the kingdom has come. It is in your midst. Therefore, the kingdom of God is the progressive rule of Jesus in our hearts by the word inspired by the Holy Spirit, illumined by the Spirit in such a degree that Satan is cast out and the kingdom of grace is advanced. And so in this whole issue of the kingdom, he makes in this passage, at least I'm going to mention two points and three applications about being heavenly minded. Number one, he says this. He says, regarding the kingdom, do not be deceived. He said to his disciples, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. You'll long for the consummation of the kingdom, the second coming. And they will say to you, look there or look here. He's here, he's there, here's the king. He says, Jesus says, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And in other words, Jesus says, they're going to be people that will try to deceive you and says, here it is and there it is. He says, don't believe them because when I come, it's going to be obvious. Now, I have been in thunderstorms before. And, but I've never been in a thunderstorm that was so broad, it was from the east to the west and the north and the south. I mean, I've, it's just, it was just a panoramic thunderstorm. It's usually been fairly contained. But he says that, that when he comes, it's going to be like a thunderstorm that is cataclysmic, panoramic, everywhere you can see. There's no, going to be no question, was that a thunderstorm? You're going to be going, oh my soul, this is, this is the mother of all storms. And so let's look at some verses about the coming of the Lord. This is going to, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus is speaking as, as a human being. He says, you know, only the Father knows this. Nobody knows. The Father does. So it's going to be, Mysterious, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The, king, the second coming is going to be sudden. Listen. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Sudden. It's going to be unexpected. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So it's going to be mysterious, sudden, and unmistakable. 
there, as, as, you, as I get older, I get to see certain trends. And, and 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the, the timings and the charts about the second coming and the, the, the machinations about how and when and where it's going to happen were, were very, very part of the landscape. In fact, there were mission agencies and there were certain Bible colleges that really built a lot of their ethos and their identity around a certain view of when Jesus will come again. And I've always had the opinion that, that it's going to be mysterious, it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be undeniable and unmistakable. And Jesus could come at any day. So, so what happens, I believe, is if, if, when you get involved in, in the where to and the what for's and all this and this and this, it takes away, I believe, the urgency of understanding and the imminent return of Jesus. You get tied up in this, what's going to happen. I just think we need to say it's going to be mysterious, sudden, and unmistakable. Let me give you two historical situations. So there was a guy named Samuel Miller who uh, was a preacher, a Baptist preacher in New England, and he did research on prophecies, and he came to the conclusion that Jesus was going to come again in October, I think it was October the 15th, 1844. A long time ago, eh? October 15th, 1844. And so he did all this exhaustive study and put out these brochures and pamphlets and, and he, he had a following. If you look at the history of it, some people say there were hundreds of people, others say a couple of thousand people sold all their possessions and they went up on the nearest mountain to await the coming of the Lord on October the 15th, 1844. And it's entitled The Great Disappointment. The great disappointment, because why? He didn't come, you know? It's, it's not, not a hard question, it's, pretty kind of, it's kind of a slam dunk question. He didn't come. And in the aftermath of that, many of the people that gave up their livelihood and their possessions were, were just involved in incredible depression, under, understandable. And Samuel Miller rebounded and he did some more charts and kind of helped start the Seventh-day Adventist, whatever that means, but anyway. That's 1844. In my lifetime, 1988, some of you are a little bit older remember this. Well, in 1988, I think there was a guy named Weisenhunt who was an aeronautical engineer. So he thought like an engineer. He loved systems. He loved putting things together. So he, 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 was, he became a believer. He did an exhaustive study of prophecy. And so he wrote a book and released in 1987 entitled 88 Reasons the Lord is Coming Again in 1988. And they sent, somebody underwrote his project, he sent 30,000, excuse me, 300,000 of those books to pastors and, and Christian leaders. I, I, I got two for some reason. Maybe he had two different names, Conrad Brown, Buster Brown, I don't know. I got two of those books. They sold 4.3 million of those books. And three different church members gave me their copies they bought. So I had a stack of these books in my library. And 88 Reasons the Lord is Coming in 1988. And guess what? It didn't happen. I mean, if it did, we're in bad shape, guys. So uh, it, it didn't happen. And I'm not, I'm not making light of that, but I'm just saying, well, here's my issue. Every time you have a system that says it's going to happen here, here, and here, it takes away the urgency of living today. I believe that. It can take away the urgency of living today. And what I'm saying is, biblically speaking, it's going to be mysterious, it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be undeniable. And so Jesus says, don't, don't be deceived by people who say this and that, but just be ready. The second point in this passage is, is be prepared. He said, Jesus says, he says, be prepared. He says, just as in the days of Noah, you know, Noah built this ark 
And I'm sure he received incredible derision and people made light of him. What are you doing? No, I'm building an ark. Why? God's going to flood the earth and he's going to, he's, he's, he's repentant of making human beings and it's, it's going to be bad. I can't believe you're doing this. No, give me a break. Bam, bam. Just as in the days of Noah, people see the ark, there's the ark. This guy says God is going to judge the earth. He's crazy. Let's go and have a barbecue or let's go and get married or let's go and look at our stock portfolio. It's no big deal. He says, just as in the days of Lot. He says, remember Lot. I mean, this just Lot, real quickly, in the Old Testament, Lot is a nephew of godly Abraham. God prospered both of them and they had huge flocks and the tribesmen or the herdsmen started fighting among themselves so they decide to separate they go up into a, a bluff and Abraham says to his nephew you choose one side of the plain I'll choose the other Lot looked at this side of the plain it was very fertile it was more it was greener it had a greater water source and he says I'm going to choose that plain the only problem is there are two little villages in that plain named Sodom and Gomorrah and Sodom and Gomorrah are known as places of sexual excess and liberality that was, that was, that was a, a, a horrible thing, a horrible thing. And so Lot grew up in that environment. His wife lived in that environment. His girls were raised in that environment. And I'm, I'm perplexed by a verse in 2 Peter that says that the soul of righteous Lot was grieved deeply by the immorality and the impure living of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and I've always thought, why didn't Lot leave? I don't get it. So I'm, I've got some questions about Lot. But that, that's Lot. And so real quickly, Lot's daughters are engaged to two men. The angels of the Lord say, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, grab your family and get out of here. And so Lot grabs his daughters and his wife and says, we have to go. And he goes to see his future sons-in-law who are engaged to his daughters, we think. And he says, God's going to judge this city because of the perverse, immoral behavior. And the Bible says this, the sons-in-law thought that he was jesting. Jesting. And I'm going, obviously Lot didn't talk to them about holiness and the glory of God and what it means to be a person of faith because they thought he was jesting. And he left and Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Now listen to this. I think we can be immunized to being deceived. We can understand that the kingdom of God, the consummated kingdom, the second coming is mysterious. It is sudden and it is undeniable. We can be people who understand that and be totally unprepared. And that's what gets me in this text. Let me give you three points now about being prepared. Number one, if you are to be prepared, you must live with an eternal perspective or with urgency. Urgency. Now, I will confess something to you. I'm a pastor. There is scarcely a week that goes by that I do not deal with Someone who has heard they have cancer or someone's had a heart attack or someone's died. This week, someone died. Last week, there was a death. So three weeks, we've had deaths. 
So I, 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 I deal with these things. I, I work with these things. This is kind of who I am. But I've got to tell you, it is difficult for me, and this is a horrible thing to say, to have an eternal perspective, to live with urgency because everything around us screams, it's only today, it's only today, it's only today. You know, we're in the middle of this COVID-19 thing that has turned upside down the whole world. It's amazing. I mean, everything from economic reports to trade deficits to school, when's it start, do we have school? To sports, do we play sports, do we not? To social interaction, to the, the, the inevitable depression that happens to people when they're socially segmented. So horrible. All, this is all horrible, and, and yet I, I, I'm, I've tried to read periodicals, and no one is saying, isn't it amazing that a little virus that we cannot see has destroyed our whole world and turned us upside down? It's all about when we're going to do this, and when we're going to do that, and how's this going to happen, and how can we do this, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth, and so on. And I pray that God hasten a day when we have more of a sobriety about eternity but I'm, not, I'm really not seeing it. Maybe I'm just wrong. I think of Acts 24 where Paul is making a, a defense of his ministry. And, and, he, and he says this. He talks about a group of people named the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. Let me just read verse 14 to 16 of Acts 24. Paul says, but this I confess to you that according to the way, the Christian faith, which they call a sect, I worship God the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, the Pharisees, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, or therefore, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. And Paul says, because I believe there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, that, the living and the dead, and I will give an account to God because I have that hope, that worldview. I take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. I, I don't let unsaid things that need to be said. I don't let broken relationships linger. I take pains to walk in forgiveness. I take pains to not be bitter. I take pains to give a good report. I take pains to not be critical because I will answer to God and I live before him. Again, I do funerals and I'll be at funerals and there are things that were not said that need to be said. And so people are filled with bitterness and rage and regret because they don't live with a supernatural view. They don't live saying, I'm, I'm going to walk before God. I walk before God. I'm going to answer to God. I've been at other funerals where nothing was left unsaid that needed to be said. And there's joy and there's hope and there's tears of, 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 of sorrow. But there's an embrace of the moment and it's glorious. So I say to you, if you have a, an eternal perspective, then you'll have this, I take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. Because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because I believe there's a process in history. Now, there's this, I brought this little book here to show you. This is a book written by a Roman emperor named Marcus Aurelius. Years of his life, about 180 AD. He, he was a persecutor of the church 
to a degree, not, Dio, not like Diocletian, but pretty, pretty good, pretty much. But he, he was the, called the philosopher king, really a pretty good guy. And Marcus Aurelius, many a night before he would go to bed, would sit down and he would write basically what we say in his journal, thinking that this is something he would go back and review. He never thought that these meditations would ever be printed. They were found after he died, and it's become one of the primary, one of the primary books in the Western canon, the, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. What's interesting, the whole first chapter, there are 17 entries to the first chapter, and every entry is about a person who blessed his life. <laughs> the whole first chapter, I thank God for my grandfather, my mother, my grandfather, for this teacher. I mean, time after time, he just thanked God for people, but I, that's another sermon. I'm going to go to chapter to book two, section 14. Now, Marcus Aurelius was what we call a Stoic. A Stoic is someone who believes that there is a God, but he really can't be defined, and God has his standards, and we should live as people of integrity and purpose. So, so there's, there's no appeal to the resurrection of the dead, to eternity. The eternity is the inky nothingness. But anyway, so, so he says... This is, this is really a good read. I would encourage you to read it. It's the, the meditations of a noble pagan. And they're good, it's good stuff. But he says there's, there's two things you need to grapple with to live well. This is in section 14, chapter 2. He says one is, I'll just read it. He says one is the present moment is all that you have and don't waste it. Well spoken. But he said the primary thing that you've got to get hold of is this. That, that all things recur in cycles and, and are the same from everlasting and that therefore it matters nothing whether a man shall contemplate these same things for 100 years or for 200 years or for an infinite stretch of time. Now, what is in is this? This is the stoic view of history. Is, is all of history is just a cycle. It's just the repeating, 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 the cyclical, cyclical, cyclical. And, and, and so we go round and round and round. And when you die, you're not sure what happens. We go round and round and round. We reject that with all of our hearts. So thank you, Marcus Aurelius, but you're wrong. We believe the Bible teaches that history is the unfolding of a plan of a great triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is the unfolding drama of redemption for all the ages that centered in the personal work of Jesus. And so every day has significance. It's not a cycle. Every day has, has, has importance. And it's the unfolding drama of what the Lord is doing in our lives. Man, you get hold of that. It's, it's, it's really good. It's really good. So, so, so get the biblical view of history. That, that, uh, so let me give you an example of another guy. So there's this guy named Manasseh Cutler. And the, and the, in America in the Revolutionary War, Manasseh Cutler was a godly pastor. And he believed after the war that we should develop what he called the Northwest Territories of the United States. Now, the Northwest Territories in 1790-95 were, were the present-day states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, those five states. That was called the far-out-there Northwest Territories. That's before Lewis and Clark, before Portland, I mean, Oregon, and Washington, and California, and, and, and the West Coast. So he talked about the importance of, of of sharing the gospel with the Native Americans, the importance of having places where people could grow and develop. And, 
And, and, and so that happened. He was one of the, at the forefront of adopting and going to the Northwest Territories. Fast forward a few years. His son is named, a man named Ephraim Cutler. It's a great story. Ephraim Cutler, as a young man, uh, a very bright young man, uh, a godly young man. They were gospel-saturated, loved Jesus people. He says, I want to go to the Northwest Territories, and I want to be a farmer and give a legacy for my children and my children's children. So he bought 600 acres for next to nothing. He and his wife head off. They go down the Ohio River, and, and they get to... Um, outside of Wheeling, they have four kids, Wheeling, West Virginia now, and their youngest son, Hezekiah, one month old, dies. They continue on their journey, they go down, another month later, a four-year-old daughter dies. Two of the four kids are dead. They keep on going down, they get close to where they're going, which is Marietta, Ohio, and his wife misses a plank walking across from the boat to land and she has a, a grieve, grievous fall. She breaks several ribs and she's in intense pain. Um, as, as they dock and come to Marietta, uh, Ephraim Cutler, age 27, discovers he has dysentery. He literally has to be carried everywhere for several weeks because he has no energy. And people say, you, you can't go into the wilderness. You can't do this. And, and he says, no, I've got to do it. I, I feel that's my obligation. And this is what he says. He says, people said to him, you can't do this. And, and he said, listen, human life is short and uncertain. The sooner such a work is undertaken, the better. In other words, I have, a, I have an obligation. I have a purpose. So he goes there. He develops property. He and his wife have several more children. He becomes a, a circuit-riding judge, one of the leaders of the Northwest Territories at the age of 86. Now, 86 in those days in that part of the world is like being 130 today. I mean, he is old. He's, he falls off his horse and he dies. He literally dies in the saddle, as we would say. But this is what was said at his funeral. Let me just read. The funeral was in 1853. Uh, a pastor who was also a professor at Marietta College spoke, and he said this. He said, Ohio has never been blessed with a truer statesman or more devoted servant than Ephraim Cutler. Here's a quote. We can hardly predict what the consequences would have been had there not been a few such men as Judge Cutler to resist the insidious aggressions of the monstrous evil of slavery. We owe it to the heroic Puritan firmness of Judge Cutler, and to him must ever belong the high honor of drafting that article in the first constitution and fundamental law of the great state of Ohio, which makes it the home of the free, while the state shall last, be they, be they black or white." In other words, they wanted to bring slavery into the Northwest Territory, and Cutler was at the forefront of saying, this will never happen on my watch. And then the Marietta, Marietta newspaper gave this obituary, and it said this. This just, this just moves me. He is the first man in the state to propose anything like a system of common school instruction for all children. And in all of his years as a trustee of Ohio University, never missed a meeting of the board. Then this is a direct quote. In every sphere and in every relation of life, Judge Cutler was a useful man. And a useful man is 
in capital letters in this obituary. It talked about him being a servant of Jesus Christ. And I thought, would in God's kindness at the end of our days, people would look at you and me and say, she was a useful woman. He was a useful man. He was a man harnessed under the gospel of Jesus who lived for others. She was a woman who gave her life away, a useful man. And listen, if you believe history is the unfolding of the purposes of a great and glorious God who died on the cross for your sins, then your life takes on dignity and purpose and you go for it. And in a culture that just kind of sits back and is just worried about stock portfolios and this and that, that's not us. That's not us. So God bless Ephraim Cutler. And let, let, me, let me say, this is hard. I mean, You've you got to push hard to think this way. You've got to push hard to think biblically and to live with urgency and to live with purpose because the culture is not going to help you at all. 2001, there was an incredibly gifted young woman, 22-year-old, named Aaliyah. And Aaliyah was, uh, had already had several records at the top of the chart at age 22, and she seemed to be a wonderful young woman. And uh, Aaliyah went to the Bahamas to make a video, music video, and her manager was pretty arrogant, and he insisted on overloading the plane, flying out of the Bahamas, and when to get back a day early, they hired a pilot to fly it who was not certified, and we think now was probably on cocaine. The plane crashed and all eight on board were instantly killed, including Aaliyah, a, a, a seemingly a really wonderful young woman. She was supposed to be her generation's answer to Beyonce. That was 2001. She has said several times previous to her death in interviews that Janet Jackson was one of her heroes. And she knew Janet Jackson, both of those incredibly gifted artists. I think she'll a picture of Aaliyah and Janet Jackson now. And so in 2015, on the 14th anniversary of Aaliyah's death, Janet Jackson uh, made a statement, and this is what she said. She says, what I shared with you, Aaliyah, is ever sacred, everlasting, and it is pure. It will endure. I love you. Rest in peace. So I don't know what she's referring to, but then she says this. I know you are there shining down on me, close quote. I know you are there shining down on me. I say as a pastor of the church of Lord Jesus, nobody's shining down on you. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord is to be in judgment. And yet when I read that, I thought, welcome to spirituality in America in the 21st century. It's vague, it's sentimental, it's undefinable, and it has no basis. And I'm not being critical, I'm just saying, listen, listen I hear this stuff all the time at funerals, <laughs> in churches. And, and I, I just go, our spirituality is vague, it's undefinable, and it's sentimental, and it's highly individualistic. We're making God in our own image. And I, see, I, I was at a funeral a few years ago. It was, it was a funeral filled with pain and sorrow. I was a young person who had died in a church. And, I mean, when people are at funerals, it's like right now, you guys are listening. You're, you're dialed in. 
When people are at funerals, they listen. And we had all these young people at this funeral. And the pastor stands up and he says, we know this person is in heaven because this person was a good guy. It's all I could do to not stand up and say, that's heresy. You look on the front of this church and there is a historic denomination that did not believe that. Today this denomination is departed from the truth. I don't know what you guys believe. You believe everything. But, but, but that, the only way you ever go to heaven is through the blood of the cross that covers your sin. And I'm glad he was a good guy. And he was a good guy. But good guys without Jesus have no hope because all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. So what I'm saying is, is, that, is that if we're going to exist in this culture, it's hard. And we, we've got to push hard and to think biblically, to live with urgency. Number two, in this culture or in our life, we must make sure that things don't consume us. There's one little verse, verse 32 in this passage, is the second shortest verse in the Bible. I think the shortest verse is Jesus wept. This is the second shortest verse. Jesus just says, remember Lot's wife. And, and what happened is, Lot and his daughters are leaving Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife. And the angels say, don't look back, don't look back. The sons in law didn't even bother to go. And so as they're going, Lot's wife looks back with a longing for what she left. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. And she is a pillar of salt until the day she disintegrates. And Jesus just says, as a stern warning, remember Lot's wife. Sometimes I hear people say, and don't listen. Be careful what you say. You, they say it's going to be so hard to leave my house when I die. I understand. So hard to leave this city when I die. So hard to leave my fill in the blank when I die. And I always want to say, if you know Jesus, it's not going to be very hard. I mean, if, if, you, if you know Jesus, you may live in a 4,000-foot mansion with an elevator and a jacuzzi and a lap pool and, and, a, and a media room and, and, and billiards and an automatic massage table, whatever you got. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And to be in heaven is to be in the presence of beauty and joy and glory that is indescribable, unbelievable, and beyond anything we can ever begin to dream or think of. So I, I need to remind myself of that. I, I need to not be seduced by things, by stock portfolios, by, by gadgets, by widgets, by things that just suck out the energy of my body. What about trying to look like you're 25 when you're 45 or 45 when you're 75 or 75 when you're 105? I can't let things consume me. Remember Lot's wife. She, she just couldn't leave it behind. She just couldn't leave it behind. It's a stern word. This, this passage is filled with sobriety. It's a tough passage. The third thing is remember the stirring statement made in verse 33. It says, remember Lot's wife, verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In other words, church, if you seek to contain and use and not give it away, it slips through your fingers. But if you give it away, if you serve people, if you make seeking the kingdom of God the priority of your life, if, if you rejoice in the goodness of the cross and the forgiveness of sins, and if you make it your ambition to keep 
to keep a clear conscience toward God and toward man, if you're known for your kindness and mercy and goodness and gentleness and approachability, you keep your life. If you live for Jesus, you keep it. You embrace it. And it's good. So, I've told you this before, but I've got on my little iPad the death dates of some of my heroes. And so I'll get a ding, ding, ding in the morning and says, remember that this person died on this day. So this week I had a ding, ding, ding. And uh, said, remember, basically remember that William Wilberforce died on this date in 18 and 33, July the 29th. William Wilberforce very quickly was a member of parliament from the age of 23, I think it was, until he died at the age of 73, something like that. 50 years in parliament. He was best friends with a man named William Pitt the Younger, who became prime minister at the age of 25, I believe that, 25, 24, 25. William Wilberforce was from a very privileged, wealthy home, um, incredibly gifted, had a great speaking and singing voice. I became a believer at the age of, I think, 26, 27. Thought about leaving Parliament to become a pastor, and this old crusty pastor named John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, unless you feel compelled to go in the ministry, we need people like you in Parliament. So he stayed in Parliament. And after being a believer a couple of years, he made a, a grand pronouncement. He said, I believe that by God's providence and kindness, he's called me to work for the eradication of slavery in the British Empire, which was laughable. I mean, it was endemic to the British Empire. But for 46 years, Wilberforce and some of his friends, all evangelical believers who loved Jesus, who loved the gospel, worked to get rid of slavery. And so on July the 26th, 1833, Wilberforce was on his deathbed. They burst into his room with great joy and said, the parliament has just voted to end slavery in the British Empire, which is a billion, billion dollar industry. Unbelievable. 46 years, three days later, he died. Here's a, here's a man, here's a man who said, you know, God has called me to this. I, I mean, I, I have purpose. History is an unfolding of the drama and the goodness and the mercy of God. I want to be part of that. So should we. With an eternal perspective. So I started the sermon with this hymn entitled, Lead on, O King Eternal. And here's the uh, last stanza of that hymn. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning where'er thy face appears. Your cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Now that is good stuff. The cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light. We always walk under the cross. We always walk, walk under the blood of Jesus given for us. We always go there. 
And then he says this. Let me explain. The crown, where God says, well done, good and faithful servant. The crown awaits the conquest or what we're to do today and tomorrow and the years to come. The crown awaits the conquest. In other words, the crown is coming, but right now we're in the conquest. And, and gladness breaks like morning where'er thy face appears. Man, that is good stuff. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. So may God give us the grace to be people who live with urgency and who live today in light of the incredible reality of eternity. Church, a body of believers um, is led by and there's a standard of holiness that I believe is the pace given by the pace setters who are the church officers in part. We have two church officers. We have elders and deacons. Deacons are primarily servants who care for the body of Christ, who care for widows and orphans, who care for the physical needs of the church, who care for the physical property of the church, who are there to do a servant's heart mentality so the elders can give themselves primarily to prayer and the word and the shepherding. So the office of deacon is very, very important. And today we're going to pray for these men. I'm going to show you a group of men who are becoming deacons today. They've been tested. They've been interviewed. And they have been found to be worthy by the grace of God to serve as, as deacons. And if you'll see their names here, it's Tyler Clem, Stacy Coleman, Derek Disatel, Quinn Desrude. Danny Green, Jim Kramer, H.L. Nolan, Ryan Parker, Trenton Seconder, Chris Turner, Jeremy Ward, Spencer Willis, and Michael Wilson. And we thank the Lord for what he's done in the lives of these men. So I'm going to pray for them now and uh, commit them to the Lord. So let's stand as we pray. and stay here. Lord, I pray that by your indwelling power that you would so work in the hearts of these brothers that they would more and more submit to your word and Holy Spirit, that you would use them to preserve and increase the church here and around the world, that they would be valiant in standing for the truth and destroy every obstacle to the preaching and the communication of the gospel of grace. And that you, Lord Jesus, would become progressively their all in all in their relationships, these men that are married in their homes, to the glory of your name. God, we, we desperately need you to lead us, and so we pray for them that these men and we would live with a sense of biblical urgency, that we would seek to honor you and love you, that you would use us to speak the gospel of grace even this week to people around us, that you would be uh, the God who emboldens us to live with purpose and fidelity. So we bless your name this day. 
Come, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.